Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Mariska von Sprudel about her new book, Running Smart, How Science Can Improve Your Endurance and Performance. A science writer and recreational runner explores the science behind popularly held beliefs about shoes, injuries, nutrition, runner's high, and more. Conventional wisdom about running is passed down like folklore and sometimes contradicts itself. The right kind of shoe prevents injury, or running barefoot like our prehistoric ancestors is best, eat a hard fight diet, and also uh, carbo-load before a race. Running cures depression, but it might be addictive. Running can save your life, although it can also destroy your knee cartilage. Often it's hard to know what to believe. In Running Smart, Mariska van Sprudel, a science journalist and recreational runner who has had her fair share of injuries, sets out to explore the science behind such claims. This engaging and enlightening book will help both novice and seasoned runners run their smartest. Well, Mariska, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to have you here. So we have witnessed really unprecedented times of the global pandemic. So I I was just wondering whether you could reflect on the main takeaways that you have gathered from this experience. Yes, well... For me, there was not a lot of change during the pandemic because I'm a freelancer, a science journalist. I I work from home um, already before the pandemic a lot. Uh, And also, um, yeah, the the articles I write for magazines and newspapers, um, there was not much change there because those magazines still need to be filled in the pandemic. Um, But... um, I guess my takeaway would be that people adapt to changing circumstances pretty fast and pretty well. I've seen that everywhere around me. And also that an empty agenda can give you so much rest. I experienced that myself. And I think our agendas should stay empty for a few evenings a week from now on. Yeah, definitely. That's a great concept. Mm-hmm. So during this time, did you develop any new hobbies or did you pick up some new skills? Hmm. Well, <laughs> you know what my hobby is. We will talk about that uh, in the upcoming hour. That's running. Um, and I still ran a lot during the pandemic, five times a week. No change there. Um, maybe a new hobby. I started walking more around uh, during the day just to get out of the house for a bit. Um, and I think that's something that will uh, last. Excellent. <laughs> so uh, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? So you already mentioned that you're a science uh, journalist. Yes, of course. Yes. My name is uh, Mariska van Sprandel. And I, li- I live in the lovely city of Utrecht in the center of the Netherlands. Um, I was born in a small town uh, nearby Utrecht. Uh, and I moved for my studies to Utrecht um, to study biology. I did my bachelor in, bi- in biology and then my master's in uh, biomedical sciences. 
Um, but when I was coming close to graduation, I realized I didn't want to become a scientist <laughs> or a researcher because I was spending hours in the lab uh, investigating the DNA methylation of colon samples from patients uh, with colorectal cancer. And uh, the theory behind this, what I was doing was super fascinating, but in the end I was pipetting all day long and I didn't see myself doing that for another four years during a PhD track. So uh, yeah, I switched careers, so to say. I was still interested uh, in science and I thought writing about scientific findings, uh, findings would be fun. So um, yeah, then I started a specialization in science communication at the University of Amsterdam. And that included an internship at an editorial office of a popular scientific website. And after that, I started freelancing as a science writer, writing popular scientific articles for all kinds of media and about all kinds of topics in the health, biology, and medical field. And then gradually, I started to write more about the science behind sports and running in particular out of my own interest, because running is a thing I've been doing since I was 20. And I'm 35 now, so that's for quite some years already. So were you always interested in bringing science uh, to people, so more of a social aspect of uh, being a scientist? Actually, no. Mm. Um, well, I was always interested in science, and I was, uh, yeah, um, I wanted to become a researcher for a few years, but then after my lab experience, I was still interested in science, but I was wondering what else I could do in science. And um, writing was something, um, yeah, I, I was keen of. I liked to uh, write um, during my studies, you know, articles about my internship and stuff like that. So it was not really one of my passions to bring science to the public. It's something that developed uh, while I was doing my second education in science communication. So, yeah, it's, it's not something that I had foreseen when I started studying. That's great. Yeah. And did you find the internship useful for your switch from a basic scientist to the science communicator? Yes. I think... I don't know if I could have done it without my internship because uh, there at the editorial office, I had a mentor um, and from him, I learned how to structure an article, which questions to ask, um, to sort through all the press releases because you get so many press releases and not all news is really news and worth your attention. So he helped me sort, sort it out. Um, so yeah, I think a mentor was really important for me to develop my popular scientific writing skills. Do you have any advice uh, to young researchers that might be looking for alternative careers in science, but I'm not really sure how to start? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, finding a mentor sounds easy, but could be, uh, I don't know if, if it's easy to, to uh, find an editorial office where you can do an internship after you have graduated. So another advice would be um, is to join the Association for Science Writers in your country. I think almost every country has uh, this association. Um, here in the Netherlands, this club organizes workshops, excursions, and you get the chance to question 
other other uh, writers about their methods. So, yeah, this is a chance uh, for networking, meet other science writers, and become part of this yeah small community as it is here in the Netherlands. So that would be my advice to people who want to start a career in science writing. That's excellent. So what kind of publications did you start writing for? Uh, at, the, at the beginning of my uh, career? Mm-hmm. Um, well, at the beginning, I was doing a lot of biology and biomedical topics. Um, gene therapy was one of my favorites uh, to write about. So it's for, yeah, I write for national newspapers, but also for popular scientific magazines. Um I, I can, I can uh, give you the names, but I don't know <laughs> if they're uh, known in other countries. But I think you could um, compare it with a new scientist in in England or the Scientific American in the US. So um, yeah, magazines like that. Um, yeah, and after that, I was starting to write more about sports science. Um, so science and running, um, yeah, became a combination because I was, uh, writing for the runner's world magazine. Um, maybe, you know, it, mm-hmm. yeah, it's very big. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was a combination, um, yeah, that I liked very much. Um, and around the same time I was joining an athletics club in my hometown in Utrecht because I was getting more and more fanatic about running. And I thought joining a club would be convenient to work on my technique and to become a better runner with less injuries. I've had my fair share of injuries. <laughs> and actually, mm-hmm. it was my physical therapist who had suggested that I join an athletics club. So when I was there, I heard suddenly I was in, you know, training in a group of 20 or 30 people, and they all had their habits and beliefs about preventing injuries and things you sh- should or shouldn't eat before a race. If you are running yourself, this might sound familiar. We all gave each other advice based on our own wisdoms. So I heard so many stories around me. And yeah, that's inspired me to write about um, yeah, the, 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 the science behind running. So how did it all sort of got together into the book? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's uh, a good question. So let me give you first some examples of things I heard people saying that were things like, are you running on those shoes for over more than a year? You should get new ones or you, you will get injured or um, you have to drink beetroot juice before a race. It will help you get a personal best. And another classic one is you need to drink before you get thirsty or else you're too late. And then I was thinking too late for what? So sometimes sometimes it's hard to know what to believe in the running world. And the science writer in me was like, is all this advice uh, science-based or is it just conventional wisdom that is passed down like folklore? Yeah, so there you go. The topic for my book presented itself. Um, Yeah, I was going on a personal quest to explore the widely held beliefs about shoes, injuries, nutrition, runner's high, and all those other topics around running. So I I reviewed the latest developments in sports science and I consulted uh, with a variety of experts and I visited a a sports lab to have my own running technique analyzed. And that's how um, 
yeah, the book came together. So you bring all of your scientific expertise to really look deep into these topics. Yes. So I'm wondering if we can start from the science part, if we, if we can look a little bit into human history. So what has uh, human running, uh, what place has it taken in the human history and how is it unique? Yeah, that, that's the topic I, I uh, start my book with, with uh, our human, uh, the, the, yeah, the place of, of running in human evolution. So we, as humans, we run on two legs instead of four. That's pretty unique. Um, and there's this theory from Harvard professor Dan Lieberman about the role that running played in human evolution. So according to him and his colleagues, uh, humans are perfectly adapted to run uh, long distances. The story of human running begins with uh, Homo erectus. That was a species of humans that appeared around 1.9 million years ago on the Earth. And they say Homo erectus was the first of our ancestors that was able to run on two legs based on the anatomy of his uh, skeleton. So this Homo erectus was also the first species with the the, the um, physical structures that are needed to run long distances. So I can, I can give you some examples. He had uh, strong ligaments at the back of its uh, neck that stabilized the head, for example, so it didn't wobble <laughs> on his neck. Uh, he also had a long Achilles tendon and an arched foot that could absorb elastic energy each time uh, it hit the ground and then release this energy uh, when the foot was lifted again. So that's needed to run um, efficiently. And also, um, early humans developed sweat glands all over the body. And they didn't have thick fur like other apes. So they could deal with the heat at the uh, African uh, savanna. So they could get rid of the heat. So these are all um, yeah, uh, hallmarks uh, that can tell us that Homo erectus was probably good at running long distances. And then the question arose, why did our human ancestors become good at it? Why did they start running? So and the, the idea proposed by uh, Lieberman is that running was uh, very useful during hunting to find protein-rich food. And it is possible that Homo erectus was able to run after other mammals for so long that the animals, with their thick fur and lack of sweat glands, um, eventually collapsed with exhaustion uh, from the heat. So this, um, this is a thing that's known as uh, persistence hunting. It means wearing your prey down uh, by keeping the hunt going for hours. So wild dogs and hyenas and wolves are also good at persistence uh, hunting. Um, yeah, I, I guess that's a short recap of how running uh, yeah, evolved in, in human history. Yeah, interesting. And there's uh, this kind of race even going on nowadays, isn't it? Where the humans run against horses. Is that right? Yeah, over long distances and over several days, the horses do indeed lose. Okay, I didn't know about these races, but yeah, I would suggest humans win because they have the sweat glands and don't have a lot of fur. So when it becomes hot, they can go on for longer than horses. 
You know, it's really interesting. All of these uh, little things uh, sort of feed into the one uh, one big uh, output of better uh, persistence runners, isn't it? So it's metabolic, mm-hmm. as you say, mm-hmm. and it's also developments of the skeleton. Yep. Is there anything about the arms uh, uh, in the running? Hmm. I'm not sure. I haven't read about that a lot, but we know that the arm movement is important for your running technique. Um, mm-hmm. But if it played a role in the evolution of human running, I, I, I'm i not sure. So when, when we transition to the, uh, uh, to the uh, modern day, mm-hmm. so how has it become a sport discipline? When did it happen and why? Yeah, running. Um, well, the origins of running are traced back to ancient Greek, and the first marathon was organized uh, at the Olympics. I would say around eighteen hundred nineteen. Out of my head, I'm I'm not sure uh, anymore. Um, but a sports science discipline, I think. It was during the running boom in the 1970s where a lot of people started running um, that running as a sports science discipline um, became popular because um, around that time people started to get injured. And around that time, the first articles concerning injuries began to appear in uh, scientific journals. So sports science in itself is, of course, a relatively new discipline when compared to ancient sciences like physics and biology and chemistry. Mm. Um, But I think in the 1970s, when the number of recreational runners began to explode, so people had started jogging just for fun and for exercise and then started to get injured. Uh, Then, yeah, I I guess around that time, um, running science became a thing. (laughs) Did it also focus on enhancing the technique and improving uh, times, for example? Yes, but I guess that is um, something that um, came around a bit later on. Mm. Um, mm, But I'm actually, I'm not really sure. So you mentioned earlier, so there are a lot of sort of wife tales going around, wife tales yes. going around uh, the running. Mm-hmm. So we're just wondering whether we can discuss maybe a few of those, which uh, with regards to running injuries, also nutrition, but also some running gear like shoes or some other gadgets that we can use. Yeah. So uh, would you like to know about developments or about uh, contradictions? Um, we can start with developments. Yeah, developments. Okay. Um, Well, in running injuries, there are a lot of (laughs) developments. Um, It is still researched a lot, still a hot topic. Um, And there's still a lot of discussion about foot landing. So landing on the heel, on the heel of your foot or on your forefoot. Um, And it is said that landing on the heel would be bad and provoke injuries because you clash into the ground. But actually, the numbers of injuries in people with a forefoot or a heel strike um, are pretty much the same. But what differs is the type of injuries. So what we do know for sure is that switching from a heel to a forefoot uh, strike can actually uh, result in a runner uh, putting more strain on muscles that are not normally used when when running. 
which in turn can lead to injury. So switching from heel to forefoot might, for example, reduce uh, the number of knee-related injuries, but it can also result in more problems with, uh, with the Achilles tendon or the calves. So what you do is uh, you shift the problem. And researchers and also physical therapists are aware of this uh, phenomenon. So they don't advise someone to just switch to another technique because that's where injuries uh, will present itself. So that's a, a development. Um, and another major one, I would say, is the acknowledgement that also mental factors and other factors um, can make you prone to injury. So it's not just your physical ability, you know, how strong your muscles are and how your anatomy uh, looks like, things like that. But uh, um, what also plays a role is being tired when you don't sleep enough or when you're feeling a bit depressed or sad or when you're stressed out by problems at your work. Uh, in your relationship or whatever, you know, the chance of getting injured increases. Uh, or when you catch a cold, that also plays a role. And these are all factors that influence your injury risk. And uh, yeah, that, this means that your um, injury uh, risk can fluctuate practically every day. Because the mm. one day you feel fine, the one day you are, you are a bit sad. And when you don't feel... Uh, mentally <laughs> so well, you should uh, take it easy with your running because otherwise you might hurt yourself. So yeah, the the mental side of running, um, yeah, it's not really new, but it's some s- sort of upcoming also in your research that this is yeah an important uh, factor. And then, this is really interesting, yeah. Mm-hmm. We, we, especially, I'm really glad that you men- mentioned this, uh, the mental factors yes. uh, that contribute to uh, performance. Mm-hmm. So do you think that uh, more endurance runners, they have uh, slightly more kind of, kind of pressure to regulate their mental states to withstand longer distances? Uh, pressure from who? For, you, you mean from themselves? Yeah, perhaps from themselves, that they have to be very, very disciplined uh, with their own mental states to be able to run for a very long time. I guess so. I guess, uh, I think, yeah, performance is for a large part psychological. Um, Mm. So I don't think there's a a big difference between running 60K or 100 kilometers, for example. I think that's all in your head. Um, Yeah, you need to... Um, you know um, how to how to deal with feelings of tiredness, boredom, um, maybe an ache in your knee or somewhere in your body. Um, yeah, and I, I think you will learn that by experience, just by expanding uh, the amount of kilometers you make, <laughs> um, that you will learn. Uh, yeah, to deal with those feelings. But I, I, I also think that um, your mental capabilities, um, they make up for yeah, yeah, a lot of endurance success, I would say. Because when you see um, athletes who have the, sa- the same um, you know, VO2 max, which is a, a measure for your condition, um, they all have good anatomy, 
physical structures. Um, you know, you don't see any difference, but what sets aside the, the, um, the winners from the rest, it always comes down to how they cope with stress and, uh, yeah, mental factors, actually. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. So I was just wondering, are there any new developments on the muscle injuries that can occur uh, during running? Does stretching actually help? <laughs> muscle injuries and stretching? Well, I did some research on stretching, on dynamic uh, stretching and static stretching. So uh, static stretching is the type of stretching where you hold a movement uh, or a stretch for, let's say, 30 seconds. And when you do it in a dynamic way, you... Uh, hold a position for maybe three to four seconds and then switch to the other side of the body. Um, there's not, there's a lot of research, but it always comes down to, we're not sure if stretching really helps. So what we do know is that static stretching before an explosive uh, race, like a sprint, that's not a good idea. Um, but hmm. there's some evidence that static stretching um yeah it, it it's not bad for your performance but static stretching is but in terms of muscle recovery there's no evidence that stretching will make your make you recover faster after a training or a race but it feels good <laughs> and that's also mm -hmm. worth something um because it can um help alleviate a bit um, if you have sore muscles after running. So at the uh, physiological level in the muscle, there's not happening much, but the perception of how your muscles feel can improve a bit. Like you don't feel, uh, yeah, you, you feel less muscle pain when you stretch. So there is a reason to stretch, but it's, uh, yeah, psychological, <laughs> I would say again. That's great to know. <laughs> So what about the diet? How do we have to fuel ourselves for running? Yeah, well, yeah, carbs. It's still all about carbs. Um, that has been the case for, yeah, it has always been the case. But uh, what's relatively, uh, relatively new is that um, eating enough protein is also um, important. So as I said, with running, the emphasis has always been on eating enough carbs to fuel your races and training, and that's still true. But runners also need to think about their protein intake, especially after a, a strenuous training or race. And yeah, you know, when thinking about protein intake in sports, we imagine bodybuilders doing strength training, people with big muscles. But when uh, running long distances, your muscles also get slightly uh, damaged. So mm. you don't put a lot of strain on your muscles with each step. But you do take a lot of steps and the tissue gets stretched for hours sometimes. So in order to repair the damage, you get yeah, microscopic, microscopic little uh, tears in your muscle tissue. Um, it is rec recommended uh, that you take an amount of 20 grams of protein after uh, your training uh, to repair this muscle damage. And also carbs <laughs> to replace for the lost uh, glycogen in your muscles. So that is something most runners could work on, I guess, their protein intake. And what about hydration? 
Yeah, hydration. Um, I've read, uh, had a chapter on hydration in my book. Drinking is important when you do long distances as a marathon and also when you do a half marathon and it's hot outside, you should drink. Um, but what I found is that um, when you look at the literature, um, more people have died uh, because of drinking too much water during their race than from dehydration. So mm. there's a, yeah, a warning in that um, we're always advised to drink before we are thirsty. And some people do drink so much <laughs> that they are heavier when they come across the finish line because of all the fluids they have taken in than, uh, yeah, heavier than when they started the race. And that's, yeah, that's not, a, that's not really smart running because drinking too much water, um, the sodium in your blood can get diluted and it can give all sort of health uh, consequences. So yeah, do hydrate, <laughs> um, but it's not necessary to replace all the fluids that you lose during running um, directly. You know, a bit of dehydration is not a problem. When you finish a race, you have plenty of time to drink enough. Um, but you can lose two to three percent of your body weight in sweat um, before um, it will have an impact on your running performance. So that's a bit of a, yeah. I don't know if, if yeah, that's, that's really important to know. Absolutely. Yeah. And actually even thinking, you know, you already kind of cautioned us about all of these anecdotal evidences. Mm -hmm. But for example, for myself, I did notice that I don't need to drink before or immediately after running, even if I run for 12 or 15 kilometers. Yeah. Yeah. Me, um, I'm not really thirsty during running as well, but now I'm, trying to train myself to drink a bit more because I want to do my second marathon in September. So then drinking really becomes an issue. You know, you mm -hmm. should drink. So in this case, I think training a bit with drinking during your running, uh, yeah, that, that, that would be a good idea. Um, but I know what you say. I'm, I'm, I'm not thirsty during running, but I, I learned... Or for when I'm done with my training, the first thing I do is drink. Not because mm. I'm thirsty, but just I think I have to replace the lost fluids for a, a faster recovery. But I don't think it's necessary to drink that much during a 10K or a 15K, no. Yeah, that's a good point. It all depends on, the, on your specific goals mm -hmm. for your running, isn't it? I guess so, yeah. So what about the running gear? So what do we need to think about when we think about our shoes? I don't know, maybe kind of general what we wear maybe doesn't really matter that much, but mm -hmm. maybe about the gadgets, because there was quite a bit of explosion now, hasn't it? Uh, with the wearables to monitor your heartbeat, uh, yes. obviously monitor distances, but uh, is it does it make any difference? Well, it's, this is not a topic I've written about in my book, but I can say something... Um about it well the first thing that comes into my mind when you talk about gear is uh the vaporfly i don't know if you if you've heard about it the shoe designed by nike a few years back 
Um, it's no, also, can you describe a bit? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Well, it was uh, developed for a few elite athletes, uh, but it's now also uh, available for, for everyone. So according to this manufacturer, uh, the secret to the shoe lies not in its weight, but rather in the material uh, used in the midsole, which is lighter and uh, springier than the widely used foam. And the sole also contains a curved carbon plate that helps push uh, the runner along. So athletes running on this type of shoe had set new world records the past couple of years. And since then, uh, since then the shoe is so really popular, also with recreational runners who want to run a personal best. And they are pretty expensive. <laughs> but yeah, we spend money on shoes we think are uh, going to get as a personal best. I guess, um, and I should say that I bought them two <laughs> two years ago. Yeah, and they do feel different than other shoes that has that have to be said. Yeah, um, but talking about um, other gear, you said watches um, and stuff like that. I like to train with a with a smart watch. Um, I can see my my heartbeat and the pace I'm running at, um, and all these stati statistics are um, transferred uh, to an app. Um, and my trainer um, can look in into this app and um, yeah, see how I've done, if I've run too fast or too slow or too long. Um, and he can comment on that. So I think, yeah, that's really helpful um, when you want to train uh, for for a specific goal uh, without getting injured. Um, so to have a bit of insight in, in what you've done can be helpful. And I, I don't know um, for other countries, but here in the Netherlands, um, there's now this device uh, called the Stride that's really popular. It's a, a power meter. So instead of watching your pace or your heart rate uh, during a training, you measure uh, the power you're running at. And it is said it helps you to run at the right intensity. It's a thing from uh, the cycling world. All cyclists uh, use power to manage their training intensity. And now uh, runners have found out about it too. I'm not using it myself. I'm not familiar with it. But I do know quite a lot of people that um, are running on power these days. That's exciting. Yeah. Uh, having a lot of data is always good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So you went to the sports lab. Can you describe uh, to us what is a sports lab and what were your experiences? Yes. Yeah, indeed. I went uh, to Belgium uh, to a movement uh, laboratory. Um, yeah, and there they, they measure runners and all the movements they make with their body. So they study uh, running technique and how it's related to the shoes you wear, um, the injuries people get. Um, so what they did, uh, what they did to me <laughs> was uh, they put small reflective balls on me, sticking onto my body and my shoes, and then um, then infrared cameras uh, positioned all around the treadmill uh, tracked the movements of those balls while I was uh, running, and then everything was monitored and measured. So the forces exerted on my body and the angle of my limbs while I was running. Um, and this was done not once, but twice. 
because I brought two pair of shoes. Uh, first, I was wearing modern motion control shoes that are designed to prevent your ankles from collapsing inward too much when you hit the ground. And the second pair was um, neutral, a neutral shoe without this uh, motion control. So and the treadmill also had a built-in force plate. So with each uh, step you take, the force of the impact uh, on your body is measured and sent to the computer. So you get a lot of data. Um, And I expected to see differences between the two types of shoes. But after analysis, yeah, we could not see that much difference between the two pairs. So in both the neutral and the anti-pronation shoes, because pronation, that's uh, the movement of your ankles collapsing a bit inward. Um, But in both types of shoes, my ankle did the same thing, and that was turned slightly inward. And that's a bit weird, because these shoes are designed to prevent this. Um, Yeah, we did identify a number of small differences between the two shoes, but nothing startling. So the scientists reached uh, the conclusion that while there are slight differences uh, between how I run in both pairs of shoes, uh, my gait looks perfectly perfectly normal in both cases. Um, so, however, uh, yeah, they could not say much about the usefulness of technologies like cushioning and move uh, motion control in shoes, um, yeah, to prevent injuries because that was the thing I was trying to find out. If you wear a modern shoe, you know, with a thick layer of foam uh, in the sole and uh, a technology that will keep your feet straight, preventing them from slightly collapsing, if that would yeah, make a difference in injuries. So in literature, we don't find a link between uh, these two. Um, so and now, out of my own experience, I could say that these shoes don't really do what they're designed for in the first place. Um, And also, I've been injured so many times um, on all different kinds of shoes. Um, So my best advice about shoes now is to (laughs) get um, a a pair that's comfortable. And that's also uh, a thing that shows up in literature right now. So you, you should not get a a shoe based on your foot foot type, but just on what feels good and what runs. Uh, yeah, what what feels good while running. And yeah, and that is absolutely important to know, isn't it? That uh, something when something doesn't actually work, so you can then figure out what does for you. Mm-hmm. So what about uh, barefoot running? So this has been uh, <laughs> uh, getting a bit more popular. Yeah, well, actually, it, it was popular for a long time, and it, it's kind of a subculture uh, amongst runners. But I get the feeling that the popularity is declining a bit and that we're now shifting back to shoes with very thick soles. Maybe you've heard about the Hoka One shoes with, um, yeah, I think they have a, no, a few. No, what these? Yeah, they are uh, shoes with a, a very thick sole, I would say, maybe about five centimeters that provide uh, a lot of cushioning. So hmm. there was a trend maybe 15 years ago to uh, put less material in your shoe. We were uh, yeah, 
um, they were going to what's called uh, minimalist shoes based on barefoot running. So that was a shoe with almost no sole, really flexible. Um, to um, yeah, to uh, copy barefoot running, but um, so the thing is that um, on when you run barefoot, uh, you land a bit more on your uh, forefoot. So that will uh, happen when you start barefoot running because um, if you run on your barefoot and you land on your heel, that will probably um, hurt. So the idea is when you run barefoot that you switch a bit to your forefoot. And uh, the idea back then was that that's a superior uh, running technique. But of course, here on the streets, <laughs> there's glass, there's rocks all other things that could hurt your feet. So they started to develop minimalist shoes um, that would make you run the same um, as when you would run barefoot, but then with some protection for your uh, soles. Um, I don't know if it's still that popular. I used to see people run barefoot during races, but not so much anymore. What I see now is, yeah, the 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 Hoka ones, uh, shoes like that with a, a very big uh, sole. Yeah, so perhaps barefoot shoes don't really enhance performance as people uh, would have hoped. I guess that's true. There have been research, yeah, there's a lot of research about performance and um, running economy, like how energy, how much energy you use when running. Um, with minimalist shoes compared to traditional shoes. Um, but there are not much differences. Uh, you're not going to run faster or more economically barefoot compared to shoes. The only thing is that uh, shoes are heavier than, uh, than minimalist shoes or barefoot. And we know that how heavier the shoes are, how much, yeah, uh, how, how more energy... Um, you will use running because you have to swing your leg uh, in the front and to the back. And when there's a lot of weight on your on your um, foot, that will yeah cost you more energy. I suppose that would be an issue with the thick soled shoes, wouldn't it? Yes, yeah. But uh, nowadays the foam they put into the the midsoles is very light, <laughs> so you can still. Um, have a, a, a yeah a thick sole that's not too heavy because of all the revolutionary foams that are developed right now. But yes, it's still heavier than uh, than an, another type of shoe. But yeah, they say this is uh, a way to prevent injuries again because uh, there's so much cushioning and that would absorb you know, the impact from hitting the ground. So for people who are injured a lot, I, I guess, um, yeah, the, this shoe uh, is attractive for them. But mm. Mm, it's only been around for a couple of years um, and literature so far hasn't come up with, uh, yeah, results about injuries that would be beneficial. Actually, it always comes down to... Uh, the fact that there's not really evidence to say that the one shoe is better to prevent injuries than the other shoe. And that comfort is the thing that matters most. 
Oh yeah, for sure. Just listening uh, to your own mm -hmm. body, how it feels. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So what are some other common myths and contradictions that uh, are surrounding the running world? Oh, there are so many, so many. So we've talked already about a little bit about stretching that it would mm -hmm. help to repair muscle damage. You, you also hear that running a lot will destroy your knees, that compression sucks, prevent injuries. You hear that marathons are not healthy for your heart, that you need good shoes to stay injury-free, and then good often meaning with motion control and a lot of cushioning. Um, about nutrition, you will hear that if you train a lot, you need supplements and vitamin pills uh, to make up for all the energy uh, you use. So that's that. And there's also um, yeah, a lot of contradictions. So we think that the right kind of shoe prevents injury. But it is also commonly believed, as we just discussed, that running barefoot like our prehistoric ancestors uh, is best. Mm. And I don't know if you've heard about the high-fat diet. That's kind of a trend right now. Um, runners are experimenting with it, but we also know that you need to eat carbs before a race to fuel your running. So there's a bit of contradiction there. And we also say that running can prevent and even cure uh, depressive symptoms. Um, but it's also known that when you run to alleviate stress and to feel better, that it can also become addictive, that you need it to feel better. Um, another one is that um, we know that running is healthy for your body and that it can increase your life expectancy. Uh, but on the other hand, we are warned that it can destroy your knee cart cartilage. And in the media, we see sometimes marathoners collapsing during a race having a heart attack or something. And then, well, sometimes those are fatal. Um, that's why some people think that running a marathon is bad for your heart. Um, yeah, so <laughs> to conclude, there's a much conventional wisdom going around. Um, yeah, and in my book, um, I was trying to find out what's true and what's not. Yeah, for sure. And just looking at how many myths there are. Yeah. And, uh, Perhaps it also stems from uh, the number of people who are so interested in running. So why do you think running as a sport is so appealing to, to people? Yeah, well, there's no shortage of information on what motivates runners to run. There are a lot of surveys. Um, they run for a variety of sometimes overlapping reasons. But what you hear the most is that people start running to stay fit including myself. That's why I started uh, 15 years ago. <laughs> and the other reasons um, yeah, are to lose weight, to alleviate stress, and of course, just for fun. And most of these runners then choose running above other sports because it's an outdoor activity. Um, it's easy to do. It's very flexible because you can do it in your own time whenever you want to. And it's relatively inexpensive. Um, that's what you hear a lot. I don't agree with that um, for 100% because running can become really expensive if you want to enter big marathons and wear new gear like the sports watches and vapor flies we just uh, discussed. So maybe, um, yeah, running was a relatively inexpensive sport back in the days, but now 
if I think about how many euros I spend each year, I won't say it's cheap. <laughs> but the, the, um, why it's so appealing to people? I think that uh, the the reason that it's flexible and you can do it in your own time without joining a, a gym or a, an association or whatever. Um, it's so individual and it's, yeah, a thing we like, I think. So why would you say running is appealing to you? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> well, I think my reasons to run have changed in 15 years. So first, it was a reason for me to become uh, a bit fit in my student time. Um, you know, I was going out a lot. I had some beers. Uh, I went to college and uh, exercise was not really a, a priority. Um, but after one year of college, I wanted to get back in shape. And running was just the easiest way to start. Um, so me and my friend, we started running just three times a week. We printed a, a schedule from the internet and we just yeah, went out the door for three times a week. And then within, I guess, one year, we were able to run um, uh, 10K within a, an hour. And that was such an achievement. And then running starts to become fun. You know, in the beginning, when you can just run 10 minutes and then you have to walk a bit, it can feel really hard. But you get better at it so fast. And then the fun factor <laughs> starts uh, to come in, at least for me. And now, yes, yeah, it has become a lifestyle, I guess. Yeah, it's uh, something I do for fun. I also want to improve my personal bests. Uh, but a, a day without running just feels a bit weird <laughs> nowadays. So for me, the most appealing thing is going out, coming out of the house, um, find a green area, clear your head. Just think about taking one step, another step, getting in the flow of moving your legs and only the movement of your body is what matters at that time. You know, you forget about all things uh, around you. And that's, yeah, every time, time and time again, it's what makes running so appealing to me. That's really great to hear, to really get uh, people motivated to start, even if you say that in the beginning it might be a little bit difficult. Yes. But then afterwards, you, you really know that you want to do it. Mm-hmm. That's correct. So in, in your book, you bring all of these scientific discoveries in a very palatable form. Uh, so I was just wondering, what surprised you the most during your research? Well, when I began my search for the science behind running, I had fully expected to find answers to most of my questions. But in many cases, um, the answers were less than conclusive especially when they concern matters like running technique and training routines. So in this book, I often had to reach the conclusion that there's simply no evidence to support a particular claim about stretching, for example, or about wearing compression socks. But that doesn't mean it's all nonsense because 
you know, is there no evidence because no evidence exists? Or is there no evidence because the right studies haven't been carried out yet? And what I also learned is that perception um, is, is really important. If you feel that something will help, then it will help. Like wearing compression socks to prevent injuries or, or stretching to recover faster. So there's no scientific evidence for that, but it can still feel good. And the fact that something is perceived does not make it any less real or forceful. So and then we're back to <laughs> the psychology again that plays a major role in running, in performance and endurance, and also how you feel when running. So did you change anything in your approach to your running after learning uh, <laughs> all of these uh, new things? Yeah, a few things. Now I'm running further, faster, and more often than ever, uh, basically, without getting injured. So my last injury is more than one and a half year ago. Um, and the thing I changed um, is the way I train. So I found a coach who makes my training schedules and he started to make me run more days in a week than I did, which seems kind of counterintuitive for preventing injuries, but it might just be the other way around as it can protect you. So by running more, you can increase your your load capacity um, so you can handle more strain. Um, let me explain that a bit. So I'm training more often now, but with less um, intensity. So not becoming out of breath, do easy runs, make more miles without exhausting yourself. Um, I run at a low pace. And I when I look back at it, I was always training too hard. I did my intervals uh, on a pace that was way too high. So now I'm running more miles, but the pace was going down and it really helped me to build a strong foundation. Um, so that's one thing uh, that changed for me. And another one is that I'm now more aware of my protein intake. I was also the kind of runner that would eat pasta before a race and that's about it. Um, but now I know that protein is important for your uh, recovery. So um, yeah, I try to uh, eat protein after a race or a training, but also uh, during a few other moments uh, during the days, around one and a half gram, grams of protein per um, kilogram of body weight. That's about what I try to, to eat. Um, I don't know if this made any difference in my uh, injury risk. I like to think so because I have so uh, yeah, not, not many injuries anymore. Um, and then another one would be that uh, we also discussed it, that I, I'm wearing shoes that are com comfortable now. So I'm not wearing shoes anymore based on my foot type that would suggest I need motion control. Um, yeah, I just buy what I think runs comfortably. So I think that would be the three most important uh, uh, things I've changed in my own running. So you basically take approach of stalking that imaginary mammoth with really consistency <laughs> and less injuries. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so hopefully you're going to outrun him. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> 
So what are you currently working on and what would be your next project? Well, um, actually, I'm still doing what I've been doing before. So that's writing articles for newspapers and magazines. Um, I've written a lot about the coronavirus, of course. Um, I just, yeah, but I'm also starting to write about other topics as well. So I just finished a piece for the newspaper about how um, Olympic athletes prepare themselves for the heat during uh, the Olympics in Tokyo. So the Dutch uh, athletes had a personal heat profile made of themselves by doing an exercise test um, in a climate chamber. And then researchers uh, performed all kinds of measurements on their bodies to give give them personal advice about cooling and uh, acclimatization. So that was kind of a cool uh, project. Um, And I'm also working on an article for a popular scientific magazine about intuitive eating. I don't know if that's something you've heard about, but it's an anti-diet eating style that is becoming more popular. Um, In the United States, it's already a trend. Um, And here in the Netherlands, it's also uh, gaining uh, more and more attention. So totally different topic. (laughs) Um, And the next article I'm going to write is about trail running. So next week I will go to the Italian and Swiss Alps for seven days of trail running, including a race on the last day. And I'm I'm gonna write a a diary style article about this trail run adventure um, for another newspaper. Yeah. And secretly, it sounds really interesting. Yeah, and secretly, I'm thinking about writing another book about running as well. <laughs> no specific plans yet. It's something for the long term. So, where can our listeners find more information about your work and also your book, Running Smart? Yeah, so the book um, uh, comes out on September 14th, and you can find more info about it. Um, on the website of my publisher, so that's the MIT uh, Press. You can also find it um, on Amazon. And if you are interested in my work, uh, particularly about the science of running, you can visit my personal uh, blog platform, platform uh, Rational Runner. For now, it's only in Dutch, but I'm considering switching to English. So. Yeah, you need Google Translate to read my posts about uh, running science. Excellent. Well, Mariska, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for hosting this podcast.